Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Well, this isn't exactly a joke, but it's a funny story that I love. A true story. Sergio Leone, the filmmaker, once said in an interview, Michelangelo looked at a block of marble and saw David. I looked at Clint Eastwood and saw a block of marble. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke-like anecdote from writer Sigrid Nunez. Sure. That'll help break the ice. Sorry, Clint. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, we'll speak with Mia Vashikovska, star of the new film, Tracks. Also coming up, comedy star Nick Frost gives etiquette tips for aliens. The band Interpol suggests songs for a dinner party. And we talk Tennessee Williams. But first... First, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama joins more than 120 leaders at a United Nations climate summit. Attorney General Eric Holder will be stepping down. India is celebrating a successful space mission into orbit around Mars. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Anna Sale. She is the host of the WMYC podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Everything you want to be talking about, but we're not talking about enough. Is that the right logline, Anna? That's about it. That's close. Close enough. (laughs) What story are you going to be talking about? at parties this week. I am going to be talking about a Wall Street Journal article about the $16 million that 180 countries owe to New York City for parking tickets. For parking tickets? I saw this story. Basically, U.N. diplomats have all these unpaid parking tickets, right? Yeah. Which, by the way, the entire U.N. conference is in New York right now. The whole world is here. Yes. You know, usually New York just thinks it's the world. The whole world (laughs) is actually here this week, screwing up our traffic patterns with all of the security. And so I loved seeing this article about the ways we are bringing down the hammer to collect on unpaid parking <laughs> That's tickets. That's right. Forget Ebola, ISIS, Ukraine. <laughs> this is what matters. So what? Break, like, give us the breakdown. The headline, of course, was $16 million owed in parking fines. And then about halfway through the article, it reveals that back in 2002, the city started cracking down on this and forcing the diplomatic community to pay up. And that's actually resulted in a sharp decline in the parking ticket fees. But Egypt, for example, is a standout for the unpaid parking debt that predates the change in policy. So I think so it, these are old tickets that they owe. Old tickets. So what, I mean, what can be done? Well, it's a good question because, you know, this is Mubarak's legacy <laughs> yeah. in New York City. Yeah. And, and who do we hold responsible? We could put a boot on the Sinai Peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> so basically someone is calling up embassies and asking about unpaid parking tickets from 1973 or something? Exactly. And it's a good news story. I mean, no action on climate change this week. But when you take a stand... You you can collect parking fees. All right, we'll, we'll meet these people at uh, the traffic court in The Hague, which, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure is a lovable bailiff. Anna Sale, thanks so much for the small talk. Sure, thanks. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our barrel-aged history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1956, a guy in New York City set the bar for winning bar bets. Bar none. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. So there are drinking stories, and then there are drinking stories. It was September 1956, and New Jersey resident Thomas Fitzpatrick was visiting pals in his old stomping grounds of Washington Heights in New York City. 
After a few drinks at a bar, the story goes, someone proposed a bet that Thomas couldn't get from Jersey to the Heights in 15 minutes. Apparently, when he returned to Jersey that night, the challenge still stuck in his craw. So at around 3 a.m., he snuck into a single-engine plane at the Teterboro School of Aeronautics. Then, fortified by the courage that earned him a Purple Heart during the Korean War, and also maybe by beer, he flew the thing back to the Big Apple, nailing a perfect landing on the street right in front of the bar. In that gentler era, Thomas was hailed not as a threat to society, but as a minor hero. The plane's owner refused to press charges. So instead of going to jail for grand larceny, Thomas's only punishment was a $100 fine, which might explain why, two years later, he did it again. Seriously. In October 58, Thomas swiped another Teterboro plane and landed it once more in Washington Heights. He jumped out and ran off, but eventually gave himself up. Later, he told police he did it to prove to another bar patron that he'd actually done it the first time. Not surprisingly, a judge threw the book at him. Thomas spent six months in jail, then lived as a law-abiding citizen till his death four years ago. His obituary does not specify how much cash he won in the bet. So that's the history lesson. Now it's time for the drink to go along with it. I'm joined by Danny Beeson. He is a bartender at the New Leaf Bar in Washington Heights, New York City, the neighborhood where Fitzpatrick landed his plane twice. Danny, you heard the story. What cocktail did this inspire you to make? It's called the Late Night Flight. The Late Night Flight, appropriate. (laughs) Yes, it's a layered martini. Starts out in a martini glass. Okay. And then it has about a half ounce of Kahlua in the bottom. Okay. And then we float a mixture that's about an ounce of vodka and about a half ounce of Chambord with about five muddled blackberries. And then to finish off the top, we have a vodka emulsion, which is egg white and vodka and a little bit of simple syrup. Shake that so it gets nice and frothy, and then it becomes the clouds on top of the drink. I guess my inspiration for the whole thing was the nighttime sky, so it goes through the Kahlua up into the purple from the blackberry, Ah. and then it's got the clouds with the vodka emulsion on top. Well, this is probably the tastiest depiction of air pollution someone's ever assembled. (laughs) Then when a bartender makes a drink that delicate with the layers, do you get a little sad when you see someone just gulp it back without even... Sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes I do. I'm like, oh, that's so pretty. Oh, there it goes. (laughs) (laughs) You just swallowed the night sky there. Now, have have you been a bartender for a while? Total of seven years. Okay, and have you ever overheard a bar bet or participated in one? Not to this extreme, no. Normally it's like, hey, I bet you I can talk to that girl and get her number, but that's about it. So the stakes are much lower. Well, I think the story is wild, and perhaps what's most amazing is that he was able to find parking in the middle of the night. I know, right? <laughs> Although, in the picture of the plane that I saw, it was a small plane. It wouldn't take up that much space. Or, or I, I imagine in, in current day New York City, if he landed, a meter person would promptly come up and just place a ticket on his window. <laughs> So, Brendan, twice in this show now, we have talked about parking problems in New York City. That's a theme, I, yeah. I thought the point of New York is you don't need a car. It's Well, right? you know, people drive in to visit New York. Oh, that's true. They should maybe parachute in, since <laughs> flying is off the table, apparently. They could move here. 
Um, <laughs> you don't want to know what the fine is for parachuting. That, oh, that's right. Anyway, people, you'll find all of our cocktail recipes at dinnerpartydownload.org. There's plenty of parking for your eyeballs. All right, so we've made small talk, imbibe some history, but it's not a party until there's music. Enter Daniel Kessler of the band Interpol. The dark, angular guitar rock on their debut Turn On The Bright Lights made it one of the defining albums of the early 21st century. This month, they put out their fifth album, El Pintor. Here's Daniel with some party song suggestions. Hey, this is Daniel from Interpol, and I'm here to host a dinner party tonight. I think a good one to launch a dinner party off it would be Link Ray's Rumble. Personal favorite song of mine, and it just kind of sets a tone for many things in life. Could start a night out at like a club or at a bar, but I figured it sounds good just off your home stereo, like on the, a nice hot summer day or something like that. The windows are cracked open and you're kind of still cooking maybe a little bit and you're uh, pouring yourself a cocktail and you're getting things going. I feel like it's setting the table. And it just has a sort of really menacing kind of feeling to it, like just something stormy just kind of walk through the doors. And even the name Link Ray, I've always been like kind of fascinated by the name Link Ray. It just it's beyond human in a way. It just feels like Link Ray. What is that? I guess the second track, it's very, very difficult to figure out which ones are going. And I'm not really doing this as far as like a perfect mix as much as, I, you know, I would like to have these characters be a part of my dinner party. So, and I'm a big dub fan. I'm a big dub music fan. And one person I, I really fell for is um, Tapazuki. I think the name of the record is uh, Pick Up The Dub. Again, mostly instrumental, this song. It's about like atmosphere and vibe and playfulness in, in terms of production and um, just kind of lightens and brightens up the room from Rumble. I would say dub is a relative of reggae, but it's a bit more about the production. There's usually a bit of manipulation. There's a lot of reverb or, or delay. The sound almost has a bit of an elastic feel to it. I also find it to be like one of the most relaxed forms of music to listen to. It's great for traveling when you're on the road, but I also find it's a mood setter. I have a really late night or going from dusk to nighttime. This was a very you know, hard choice to figure out what the third one was gonna be. Uh, for a second, I was gonna do a Miles Davis track off of uh, Sketches of Spain because I just really love that record. And that's a tangent to say I'm not gonna play this song, but I figured I'm gonna get that in there so you know I was thinking about it. But then there would've been three instrumental tracks and maybe that's one too many. So the wild card here I think I'm gonna do is Sly and the Family Stones, uh, If You Want Me To Stay. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today. I, I, you know, this song, I feel like it's just got a, a, a levity in a sort of different way. I fell in love with this track when I was actually in high school, and uh, for the most part in high school, I listened to super, like, underground hardcore, stuff that's really opposite of this. But this song, really, I just fell in love with it, and it just, you know, I heard it actually not that long ago, and uh, I just was like, oh man, this song still sounds great. Yeah, I'm gone, forget it, 
The actual music itself, I think, is just kind of very steady. It's not about making a gigantic shift to a chord. It's just the whole song is catchy, and it's in some ways I think it probably had a bit of an influence. I've always been sort of fascinated by songs that I I love, but then when you actually on closer introspection, you're like, oh man, there's really not many changes. They're giving you a sense of、uh, an illusion of change. You know, as far as our music for a dinner party,、um, I think I'm going to go with a song called "Same Town, New Story." This song we had the structure, but we were missing kind of like a vocal line and a bass line. And for a while, I thought, well, maybe it'll be an instrumental and maybe it'll be a B side, and that's that's totally cool. And then Paul wrote a really great bass line and a vocal line. Next morning, I listened to what he'd done, and I was sort of floored. The groove of the whole song, the bounce of it—it's kind of a good way to sort of like tie up the the whole dinner party. Dinner party soundtrack from Daniel Kessler of the band Interpol. They're on tour now in support of their latest album, El Pintor. All right, we're gonna take a break, but stick around. In just a minute, actress Mia Wasikowska gives us weird animal trivia, and we'll learn where ketchup comes from. And we don't mean from the Heinz factory. That and more when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I am Brendan Francis Newnham. I am Rico Galliano. Coming up later, etiquette advice from Nick Frost, the actor and writer best known for making the gory slaying of monsters hilarious. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actress Mia Wasikowska. She played Alice in Tim Burton's remake of Alice in Wonderland, and Jane Eyre in Kari Fukunaga's retelling of that story. This week, she plays the real-life heroine Robin Davidson in the movie Tracks. Davidson captured the world's attention as a young woman when she trekked nearly 2,000 miles across the Australian desert with a dog, four camels, and sometimes a National Geographic photographer. In the movie played by Adam Driver, Robin wants to escape the world, but to get funding, she reluctantly lets him document her trip. Would you mind not taking pictures? Man has to do his job. That's exactly the reason blacks were dumped in missions. Men just doing their job. Eleven million readers will see these photographs.、I、like to think that what I'm doing is a service. A couple of pictures in a magazine. You think that's really going to make a difference? Yeah, I do. And you know, if it wasn't for the magazine, you wouldn't be on this trip. You know, as I'm watching this movie, in, in a way, Robin's life is the opposite of being an actor. Because,、yeah. or, or at least this trek was, because、mm-hmm. she's alone. No one can see her, and I'm wondering, did you find playing was was she hard to relate to? Um, no. I from the very first script, which was a lot more sparse than the film that is now, I found it really very emotional, and I really liked her character and felt like I understood her. Did you ever meet Robin? 
Yes, I did. Yeah, I met her. I was scared to meet her and knowing her character from the book, I thought she would hate anybody who was playing her in a film. <laughs> um, but the producers encouraged me to meet her and said that she had a good perspective on what we were doing. And then I did and she was wonderful and it was very freeing to not have to kind of have mm. that anxiety. So wait, you had anxiety that she wouldn't like you because you were an actor, not not anxiety about maybe distorting your sense of how you should perform? No, more like, you know, she comes across as such a feisty, strong-willed person and and exactly that, like having a problem with the fact that her journey kind of already got hampered by National Geographic. And so often I think that happens, like the thing that enables you to do the thing you want to do also kind of takes something away from the experience. And I think that's how... Uh, you know, she felt about the trip mm. being documented because originally she just wanted to do it completely on her own. And then that's right. in order to get funding, she had to have this guy meet her along the way. And he sort of represented everything that she hated about what she was trying to kind of get away from, you know. You know, there are moments in the movie when, when Robin keeps getting harassed by the press who've mm. learned about her journey. And it's this odd juxtaposition. You're in the desert and then all of a sudden there's like this very cool looking paparazzi, but paparazzi nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Were you able to draw from your own experience? Yeah, this, the danger with me saying that I have a problem with that is that it's so in obviously a part of my job. So. Sure. But, yeah, I can completely understand about that. Like I almost think I'm going to have a seizure anytime I'm on the red carpet because it's so <laughs> horrifyingly <laughs> overwhelming just standing there while there's all the flashes going off. You kind of don't even know where you are or if your eyes are even open. So, yeah, yeah I can understand that feeling. Yeah, it's strange. This may be a question you're tired of me asked, but I have to ask. The camels are such an intense presence, especially in the beginning of the film. They're snorting, they're foaming. What what was it like working with them? Um, well, I did like a short camel boot camp, which was just kind of getting to know the animals. <laughs> and I think they, have, they get bad press because they kind of growl all the time. But you yeah. learn that that's not attached to any emotion. It's not like attached to like an angry, aggressive emotion. They just sort of like growl constantly. Yeah. And you learn their temperament really quickly and realize they're very gentle and they're never going to do anything unexpected. Like I think a horse is even more unexpected. They're more likely to kind right. of spontaneously kick you or something. But camels are relatively docile, at least definitely the ones we were working with on the film. So you played Robin. You've also played Alice from Alice in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. You played Jane Eyre. Next year, I think you're going to be an Emma Bovary. Mm-hmm. You seem to have a knack for playing these like iconic females. Yeah, and yeah. I'm wondering, was this a conscious decision or have you just been typecast in the luckiest way possible? <laughs> no, it wasn't really conscious. It just sort of happened that way. And then I really like those books. And so when they've come up, I've been like, yes, please, I would love to play that. So no, it wasn't <laughs> like I didn't mean to become the go-to literary person. You're a photographer as well. Yes. And I read that on the set of Jane Eyre, you, is this true, you had a pocket sewn into your costume so you could conceal a camera? Oh yeah, I did. I mean, there was like so much fabric in my skirt that I was like, they definitely can hide a camera in here. Well, that isn't the case in tracks. Like there was not enough fabric for you to no. <laughs> do, to carry a camera. Sometimes you weren't wearing any fabric. Um, yeah. Did you bring a camera and did you document this shoot? No, I was kind of maybe too overwhelmed of having to keep track of a camera in the desert. So I kind Mm. of replaced that with knitting. I took up knitting obsessively. It seems like the last thing I would want to do after being in the sun all day is (laughs) knit uh, a wool item. All right. Well, we have two standard questions that Mm -hmm. we uh, ask our guests on the show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Um, I'm sorry to say this, but I think you asked it. 
Um, <laughs> the, the, it happens sometimes. The Jane Eyre, Alice, <laughs> Madame Bovary one. Busted. That's, that's the only one I can think of probably because no, I've fair. had that a couple of times. It's interesting. What Not only is there the danger of getting typecast in Hollywood, but you can get typecast by the press. And Yeah. Well, yeah. next time I'll ask you about Stoker and Only Lovers <laughs> Left Alive. Okay? Cool. Thanks. All right. Our second question is, Tell us something we don't know. This can either be a personal fact about you or, you know, an interesting piece of trivia. Um, oh, do you know what porcupines are? Do Yeah, I do, I do know what porcupines are. Oh, okay. Are. They yeah. float in water. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. You're not making that up? Right no. Now. And flamingos can live <laughs> up to 70 years. That's the fact. How do you know these animal facts? Are these coming from your preparation for this role? Or? <laughs> I'm not sure. They might have been on like a lolly packet or something. You know how they sometimes <laughs> have that? So it wouldn't have like a porcupine in water would basically be a blowfish though. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that would make sense. And that would be a danger for children with water wings because mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. would pop their water wings and yes. they would drown. Exactly. So. so beware. And then flamingos being 70 doesn't surprise me as much since they're, I think, the state bird of Florida, and that's where old people go. Oh, there you go. Mia Vashakovska, she stars in the new film Tracks. And Rico, it turns out Florida's state bird is not the flamingo. Oh, no. It's the mockingbird. But what? in my defense, I'm not the only one confused by that. Yeah. Uh, one bird blogger said, quote, I cannot think of a more pathetic choice for one of the most bird-rich states in the nation. What's their state beverage? A half glass of warm tap water? He mocked the mockingbird. <laughs> he did. It's pretty Amazing. meta. And now, time to eavesdrop. The new book from novelist Sigrid Nunez is called Sempre Susan. It's a memoir of her friendship with the late writer, critic, and activist Susan Sontag. Today, we overhear Sigrid give us a sense of her subject. Hello, I'm Sigrid Nunez. I met Susan Sontag when I was an editorial assistant at the New York Review of Books. And she ended up becoming uh, probably the most important mentor that I ever had. For a time in the uh, 70s, we shared a household at 340 Riverside Drive. When I decided that I wanted to go away for a bit, I had applied to and gotten into a writer's colony, and the colony was in upstate New York. It was my first time ever going to a writer's colony, and for some reason I no longer recall, I had to postpone the date on which I was supposed to arrive. I was concerned that arriving late would be frowned on, but Susan insisted this was not a bad thing. It's always good to start off anything by breaking a rule, she said. The only time I worry about being late is for a plane or for the opera. Out to lunch with her one day, realizing I was going to be late getting back to work, I jumped up from the table and she scoffed. Sit down. You don't have to be there on the dot. Don't be so servile. Servile was one of her favorite words. Why was I going to a writer's colony anyway, Susan wanted to know. Why would anyone want to leave Manhattan, capital of the 20th century, as she loved to say, for a month in the woods? When I said I could easily imagine moving to the country, maybe not right then, but when I was older, she was appalled. That sounds like retiring. The very word made her ill. She herself was endlessly curious, but not about the natural world. 
Once, I showed her a story I was working on in which a dragonfly appeared. What's that? Something you made up? When I started to describe what a dragonfly was, she cut me off. Never mind. It wasn't important. It was boring. Boring, like servile, was one of her favorite words. Another was exemplary. Also, serious. You can tell how serious people are by looking at their books, she said. Not only what books they had on their shelves, but how the books were arranged. Because of her, I arranged my own books by subject and in chronological rather than alphabetical order. I wanted to be serious. It is harder for a woman, she acknowledged, meaning to be serious, to take herself seriously, to get others to take her seriously. But most women were afraid of looking too smart, too ambitious, too confident. They were afraid of looking masculine. Rule number one was to get over all that. Here's one of my favorite Susan Sontag stories. It was sometime in the 60s, after she'd become a Farrah Strauss and Giroux author, and she was invited to a dinner party at the Strauss's Upper East Side townhouse. Back then, it was the custom Shea Strauss for the guests to separate after dinner, the men repairing to one room, the women to another. For a moment, Susan was puzzled. Then it hit her. Without a word to the hostess, she stalked off to join the men. Dorothea Strauss told the story gleefully years later. And that was that. Susan broke the tradition, and we never split up after dinner again. She was certainly not afraid of looking masculine, and she was impatient with other women for not being more like her, for not being able to leave the women's room and go join the men. Sigrid Nunez reading from Sempre Susan, her memoir about Susan Sontag. It's out in paperback next month, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, this week, I met a guy who is attempting the seemingly impossible. He's going to make me stop spilling things on myself, (laughs) finally. (laughs) Seemingly, I said, (laughs) not not actually. Oh, okay. Uh, This week, actually, I spoke with Nick Coe. He is a respected Los Angeles chef, and he is creating painstakingly crafted complex ketchups he would like people to use nope. instead of Heinz. An uphill battle, I'm afraid. Well, maybe. There's been a lot of discussion in the food world lately, indeed, about the fruitlessness of trying to best Heinz. But to learn about ketchup and to taste Nick's, I met him at a market called Urban Radish, where they sell it. First, I asked him about his ketchup's brand name, Molinet to Bilderborst. Well, it's our character who represents the ketchup. It was actually come up with by this British humorist in the 30s who specialized in inventing completely off-the-wall names. So I wanted something that was unlike all the focus-grouped corporate-style names that people come up with these days. Like Heinz. That would be one, yes. Um, Let's get a little background about ketchup. Where did it come from? Well, the origins of ketchup, they think, probably was some sauce in Southeast Asia that British traders tasted back in the 17th century. The original one was probably something more like fish sauce than what we think of as ketchup today. And when they went back to England, they tried to reproduce those flavors that they had 
using their local ingredients. So they had things like anchovies, walnuts, mushrooms, shallots, all these sort of different savory, strong flavored ingredients. That actually sounds amazing. Some of those original ketchups were probably amazing, and they still make mushroom ketchup in England. So, but then what may, you know, we think of it as a tomato-based thing. How does that happen? It's hard to say why tomato took over all the other ketchups, except that tomatoes go really well with not just savory spices, but also with some of the sweet spices like cinnamon, allspice, and cloves, which are the classic spices of ketchup. It's a very sort of broad palette that tomato allows you to use. And it goes with a very broad range of foods. And that's somebody I'd read somewhere that that is the kind of genius of ketchup, and specifically Heinz ketchup. Before people talked about, say, the concept of umami, it was umami. It had bitter, it had sweet, it had umami, it had sour, all of these flavor points. Yes, it does. Now, the story of Heinz is originally ketchup in the 19th century, when it became tomato ketchup became really popular, was a lot less sweet and a lot less vinegary. But the problem that they had was that when they put this stuff in bottles commercially, it would start to ferment in the bottles and even explode on people's shelves. So that was obviously a problem. <laughs> it sounds exciting. Well, it was a little too exciting, you know, shrapnel as you walk down the aisle. So they started to use all these different artificial preservatives back in the 19th century. And Heinz figured out a way to use nothing but vinegar so that the ketchup was sanitary and stable in the bottle without using artificial ingredients. They, they upped the amount of vinegar enormously to make that work. And in order to balance out the vinegar, they added sugar. And that sweet and vinegary flavor that we know of as Heinz today comes from them trying to pull artificial preservatives out of the ketchup. The next thing that happened was Coincidentally, fast food started to become popular in this country. French fries, hamburgers, fried, greasy. And in order to balance out the flavor, instead of needing something that was very complex and had a lot of elements going on in it, you could actually get away with something really simple. And that's the flavor of Heinz. <laughs> Spoken like somebody who's in competition with Heinz. <laughs> this is a question that's being asked a lot in you know food blogs and stuff, is why we need anything more than Heinz. People even in very high-end restaurants, have been saying, you know, we tried making our own homemade ketchups. We, you know, make everything else homemade. But for whatever reason, people really like Heinz. That's what they expect. It works. Why should we not have Heinz? Why do we need your product, I guess? I suppose for the same reason that we don't all drink Budweiser and drive Chevrolet Citations and wear Dockers. Because there is something better than the giant industry-crushing behemoth. But these are people that are saying this that are the kinds of folks that normally would reject corporate behemoths. But there's just this one thing that they just say, you know, you can't do any better than Heinz. One thing about ketchup is it's a lot harder to make than people realize. If you follow the old recipes, which is what I did, I went back and found all these 19th century recipes, including an old family one. They have a lot of very complex sort of ingredients that all have to be balanced out into it. The reason most people's homemade ketchups, including most chefs' homemade ketchups, fall down is because to get it right, it takes months and months and months of experimentation. All right, well, let's try some of these. You have three different flavors out here. Which one? I guess I should start with the classic. The savory, and that's the classic flavor. This is how ketchup used to taste in the 19th century. Oh, that's really good. Wow, I could almost eat that raw. 
It's about as thick as the ketchup that I'm used to. A little pepperier. It does have that vinegar punch to it, but it has almost the quality of like a gazpacho. Am I out of my mind saying that? Some of the Some of the things that are in gazpacho are in this. And you're also feeling the texture difference. This is, has a, a rougher texture, whereas most ketchup, they run it through this machine called a finisher, which gives it the kind of whipped, puddingy, almost slimy texture that you associate with, with ketchup. I don't know that I'd say slimy, but I know what you're saying. All right, I'm going to try the spicy while we're at it. I'd say it's maybe sriracha level heat. That's good. What would you put this on? This is the one that I put on hamburgers, but it's also quite good with seafood because it's sort of reminiscent of cocktail sauce. Oh yeah. What is the difference between ketchup and cocktail sauce, by the way? Not much. Basically, cocktail sauce is chili sauce, which is a type of ketchup that has more peppers. And then you add horseradish, Worcestershire sauce, and lemon juice. I'm never buying cocktail sauce again because I have all those things in my refrigerator. Nick Coe, maker of Molinade to Bilderborst ketchup. And Brendan, I'm from Pittsburgh, where Heinz mm-hmm. is based. And in a non-fast food situation, I would actually use Nick's ketchup instead of Heinz. Wow. I didn't, well, That's right. my four-year-old nephew just became addicted to Heinz, so really? they'll take your place. Phew. Heinz is secure in their profits. That's right. Big ketchup is safe. Folks, we're going to take a break, but in a minute, Etiquette with comedy star Nick Frost. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. And I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, New Yorker theater critic John Lahr remembers the late, great playwright Tennessee Williams and the opening night he preferred to forget. It was probably the most famous fiasco of any opening. Hint, it involves fire. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's right. Each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is comedian, writer, actor, and director Nick Frost. He is maybe best known as Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright's partner in crime in a series of hit action comedies. He fought zombies in Shaun of the Dead, secret cults in Hot Fuzz, and 12 pints of beer plus aliens in World's End. Now he has lent his voice to the stop-motion animated film The Box Trolls, which hits theaters this weekend. And Nick, it's great to have you. Just another day in the office. Yeah. (laughs) Fighting zombies and the occult robots full of blue ink. What a great world you've created for yourself. What a smashing treat. (laughs) Hello. Emphasis on the smashing. Well, we're glad to have you here. Thanks for having me. So your new film, The Box Trolls, uh, takes place in this orderly cobblestone village uh, but quickly we learn that things aren't as quaint or as cozy as they look. It's a very twisted universe. And that's true of a lot of films you're involved with. Beneath the boring regular world, there's this insane alternate universe. Where do you think that comes from in your work? Uh, well, you know, I think if you live in a big city, I live in London, and, you know, I think all of us somehow crave to find a kind of weird little diagon alley to get away and to see what what's what lies beneath, do you know what I mean? But it's very specifically, it's not like a wonderful, charming world often. It's like aliens are attacking, people yeah. are zombies. It's... Well, I think with the stuff we made, you know, Shaun of the Dead 
came from a, a weird fantasy that the three of us had. You know, we're big Romero fans, so what would we do if it happened here? You know, a zombie attack. Yeah. And um, my plan is the same now as it was then, and I'd make for a stadium with turf. You know, so I'd make for a soccer stadium or a rugby stadium. Why turf? Well, you you can actually turn the pitch into crops. You know, so you could plant crops if you're going to be there for the long <laughs> for the long haul. Then you need to eat. You can't just rely on canned That's goods. That's a good point. And it's kind of barricaded as well. Yeah, you can lock it all up. It's all fully barricaded. You can sleep in the kind of director's boxes. and <laughs> That's smart, but I, I still don't think you're going to be able to sustain, you know, a large population. Yeah. But I'm suggesting, you know, I'm not saying there are thousands of people in there. I'm saying it's me plus... Simon uh, Page, horny redhead, <laughs> <laughs> and the two of us are growing crops together, repopulating the stadium. Yeah. <laughs> what about a World War Z scenario where they can come over the walls? Oh, then you're kind of finished in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, then. <laughs> okay. I just let her meet me. Okay, great. Um, this is not your first foray into voice work. You've done. You were a voice in Ice Age and other yeah. animated films. You know, we're radio guys. We have kind of the th- things that we do to get across a point when you can't see our faces. Do you have any secrets? I mean, obviously, the only difference and the biggest difference is no one can see you, which means you can yes. not wear pants during the voiceovers. Exactly. Is the best. Which is amazing. Don't you feel great right now? Yeah. We're all pantless. Um, it made me wish I'd actually worn underpants, to be honest. <laughs> it's a little chilly in here. Uh, yes, we wish you did, too. <laughs> you're so hirsute that we can't really... You're just, it looks <laughs> like just, you're wearing pants. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like I'm wearing from the waist down like a pan costume. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, I guess it's easy to see why we invited you here to answer our listeners' etiquette questions. Okay. Are you ready for these? Yeah, do it. So the first question comes from Evan in L.A., and Evan writes, What's the right first thing to do or say to an alien or any unidentified species whose intentions towards you are unclear? Uh, I think the unidentified species thing throws it off slightly because I think an alien... You deal with an alien differently than you would other species. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not like if you've seen a moth that you don't recognize and you're trying to say to it, hello, hello. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Which would be weird. Uh, But I think an alien, I I mean, I guess you'd want to get across that we, we are a peaceful race. We're not. Um, and that we probably wouldn't um, cut him up to see how many hearts he had. We will. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think you have to... So lie to, to him, basically. Lie. Just start off a relationship with a lie. That's, that's true. Uh, I always think that's a winner. But it sounds like there is some wisdom in there, Nick. It sounds like what you're telling Evan is when an alien comes to you, do anything you can to not have it hurt you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah the, same with, the same with powerful adult chimps as well. <laughs> So just pretend you're talking to a powerful adult chimp. Yeah, treat it as you would a powerful adult chimp. <laughs> That's kind of how I move through life anyway. I think there'd so. be a lot less street crime if, if, if LAPD are. released 200 adult chimps just on the street and let them do what they want. Huh? You'd, people wouldn't go out for fear of chimp. Yeah, it's like a 24-hour right. curfew, basically. Yeah, it would be amazing. All right, <laughs> so there you go. Evan in L.A., that answers your question, I think. Here's something from Davis in Toronto, Canada. My partner and I live in Canada, where politeness is important. A neighbor came round tonight gushing enthusiastically about seeing Lionel Richie in concert. My partner found this highly amusing and immediately started singing Hello and other songs from the Richie repertoire loudly. My neighbor was unamused, and I don't know what to say when I see the neighbor again. Should I apologize on my partner's behalf, as he is still finding it very amusing? Um, I'd say leave it. Don't do anything? Yeah, just don't... What's done is done? Yeah. 
the neighbour might have something going on we don't know about. You know, he might have financial worries. He might. He's not necessarily... <laughs> I think it's very arrogant to assume that that guy was kind of cold because your partner made a joke about him going to see Lionel Richie. And he may have been thinking about oh, yeah. right. something else. Stress. Yeah. You know, he may be having his car repossessed. It is Canada. They've got a lot on their minds. they got a lot on their minds. But I have to say, guys, we missed an opportunity here. Davis asked, my neighbour was unamused. I don't know what to say. Shouldn't he say next time he sees his neighbour, hello? Is it me you're looking yeah. for? Yeah. I mean, that's how, I think that's how neighbors get shot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So do, whatever you do, don't do that. Let it go. Okay. We have another question. This comes from Brenna via Facebook. Okay. Brenna writes, my very kind neighbor, who's an acupuncturist, saw I was walking in a knee brace. He told me to come over to his house and he'd look at my knee. I'm a little squeamish, but I didn't know how to say no, so I went. Before I knew it, he'd inserted 10 needles, told me to sit still for 30 minutes, turned a blazing lamp on me, and then started playing Swanee River on an electric organ. It felt like the set of a Wes Anderson movie, and I knew I was done with acupuncture. Mm -hmm. When he removed the needles, he said, I had to come back in two days. What to do? I'd just go back. <laughs> I know. Is this really a question? Uh, I mean, I think you should have just said no at the get-go at the top. Now it's over. Well, you've done it now. Now you're in. You know what to expect, and you never know. It might help. I mean, I think the weirdest part in all of that is the Swanee River bit. Yeah. By the way, I got a massage recently. You know, they always have music on in the background. Yeah. No, they don't always have music. <laughs> well, this guy Where had... were you? At a strip club? It was. They said it was a massage parlor. <laughs> what were they playing? It was the soundtrack to this very sad was movie. Was it Pour Some Sugar on Me by Def Leppard? It was not. Soundtrack to Watership Down. <laughs> it was a soundtrack to this very sad movie, and it just kept playing over. It mm -hmm. wasn't a very long soundtrack, so I was hearing the same sad songs yeah. over and over again. Who wants a massage to the soundtrack of Schindler's List in the <laughs> exactly. background? It's so exactly. off-putting. Yeah. It was a little weird. The Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. soundtrack. I don't think I'm going back. Well, let's hopefully, you know what, guys? We answered Brenda's question, but she said she needed to go back in two days. For all we know, Brenda is now dead. Yeah, exactly. Can no longer be with <laughs> Brendan has now been eaten yeah. by the Swanee River Man. If you're out there, please follow up with another letter so we know you're alive, Brenda. And I hope your knee's all right. I hope your knee gets better. There you are. Nick, last question, and this comes from us, um, and we ask this of each of our guests. What's the most memorable get-together you've been to who what where details please um there's a there's a bunch you know i mean i guess and also i'm not a big goer out you know i'm not a big gang of men style person and really? nor is edgar <laughs> and nor is simon really that's surprising given the characters you sometimes play yeah i mean it's i'm an actor that's part of my job to create uh, an, an illusion <laughs> um i'd say simon Stagdo was kind of kind of crazy we went to a place in belgium for two nights and this would be simon Pegg's stag party his bachelor party yeah, yeah. And that was just like a, a group of 12 men. We have a really big football match in Britain each year called the FA Cup. Yes. And it's our version of the Super Bowl, essentially. And it's a real big deal. And it happened to coincide uh, Simon's uh, Stag bachelor party with the FA Cup final. Oh, my God. So because I had to, I arranged the whole thing. I found and sourced a bar in, in, in Brussels and I hired the whole thing and I got them to put a giant TV in there so we could watch the FA Cup. And when we got there, <laughs> Simon said, I don't really want to watch the FA Cup. I'm just going to walk about for two hours. What? And then he went, he doesn't really like football, but everyone else liked football. So he went off for two hours and bought comic books and action figures. <laughs> And he wow. came back and we were all hammered and we openly chided him. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most memorable thing is you got to make Simon feel like even a bigger geek. That's it. <laughs> all right. Oh, because Martin, Martin Freeman was on the stag too. And so Ma uh, Simon came back with a Hobbit figurine that he'd bought. <laughs> and then we all chided the Hobbit figurine too because it looked like Martin. It was Martin. <laughs> well, Nick, 
time to put your pants back on because our etiquette segment's Never. over. Thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank a, you. A pleasure. I just hope I could be of some assistance. Nick Frost, along with the likes of Sir Ben Kingsley, he lends his voice to the stop-motion animated extravaganza The Box Trolls. It opens this weekend. That's right. And by the way, for those who don't speak geek, the actor Martin Freeman plays the titular Hobbit in the Hobbit movies. That's right. And people, if you like to overexplain jokes, Come on maybe now. you need etiquette advice. <laughs> Send us your problem and we'll find someone cool to tell you how to deal with it. Uh, Go to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time for Chattering Class, where we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. Our topic today is the late playwright Tennessee Williams, and our teacher is John Lahr. He's a writer for The New Yorker magazine and the Tony-winning co-author of the one-woman Broadway hit Elaine Stritch at Liberty. His latest book is an exhaustive biography called Tennessee Williams, Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh. It came out this week. And John, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. So I'm actually a relatively new student of Tennessee Williams' work. So something I really liked about the book is learning about kind of the early failures before the plays that have become required reading for theater and literature students. Tell us about the opening night in Boston of of Williams' 1940 play, Battle of Angels, which was supposed to go to Broadway. It was, and it was probably the most famous fiasco (laughs) of uh, any uh, opening, mainly because uh, the ending of this play, which is rather overheated Southern drama... Almost literally. ...required the burning down of a building. And in the tech rehearsal... When when it came time for the house to burn down, it was just a little smoke. And the director said to the tech people, look, do what you have to do. Give me a fire. Well, they sort of uh, gave him a fire and a half. And uh, when the finale, when things started to go up, the audience started to choke. And they were... As the actress who was taking her final bow, people were running for the exits, you know, thinking the the theater was on fire. Literally, yeah. It was as famous a disaster as Glass Menagerie, which was his his first Broadway play, the first play that got to Broadway. Uh, was a success. Just five years later, he debuts Glass Menagerie on Broadway. Arthur Miller is quoted in your book as saying it was a, quote, revolution of New York theater. Describe what the theater was like before that play and how Menagerie changed it. Uh, well, you know, what, what Williams did simply was he brought poetry to the theater. And not just poetry of language, but the poetry of the stage, lighting, costumes, the the interaction of that, the symbolic nature of color on the stage. So what he did was he freed up the theater from its stage naturalism. Just don't forget that the theater had just gone through a depression and... World War II. A world war. So what you had really was a sort of stage naturalism, a kind of very gray, monochrome, Mm. unexpressive. It was journalistic. And then here comes Williams, who shows how to be both real and inside the mind Mm. of his characters. It's very internal. And it's very interesting, since you mentioned Miller, that the title of A Death of a Salesman, which couldn't have been written without The Glass Menagerie, was inside his head. That was the original working title. And that's where Williams 
revolution was. He was able to take an event which is real and turn it into something that was real and at the same time symbolic. Yeah, very psychological and internal as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You met Williams only once in the 1970s. That's correct. My understanding is it wasn't a wonderful moment. At Lincoln Center, where I was briefly the literary manager, we revived Camino Real with uh, Al Pacino as Kilroy. And uh, Williams was legless, as we say. Uh, he, he literally was had to be lifted into his chair. Because he was so doped up. He was, as he said, a zombie. I mean, he was drugged and drunk. And when, he, when I met him backstage, he couldn't, I'm sure he couldn't remember anything. But the play was well-received. He hadn't had in that period, which he called his stoned right. age, many successes after 1965. Well, this is actually my question to you, that, that you know, starting in the mid-60s, he was just ripped to shreds by critics. Uh, yes, and there was a wonderful play, I mean, a first-rate play called Gnadiga's Fraulein, hmm. which was done on Broadway in 1965. I was reviewing, I saw it. Terrific play, badly directed and overproduced, and the play failed. But the play, as a play, uh, it's playful, it's funny. And these critics, I'm afraid, it was really piling on. You've got to also remember that we were in the middle of a war. Right, the Vietnam War. And Williams knew that his kind of play didn't play well in war. His interest was solipsistic. He was self-involved. He was writing about the self. And in the periods of war, you're writing about the society. It wasn't the right time for his sensibility, just as, conversely, it was the perfect time hmm. when Glass Menagerie came in 1945. America was now the leader of the Western world. People were now free to pursue, without a war, without a depression, to pursue their self-interests. And Williams' plays are all about the self. They're all about individualism and finding your pleasure and your desires and or having those frustrated. And in the 70s, in the middle of a war, that doesn't play so well. Yeah, 60s and 70s. And, 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 and as you say, rightly, the reviews were awful. And, and, you know, I'm a great fan. One of my favorite critics is Robert Brewstein who one of his lines was, William should go to a three-mile island with a one-way ticket. I got, actually got an email from uh, Bob uh, a couple of days ago saying, did I write that? That was so cruel. But there it was. It, you know, he was written off. As William said, uh, I am frequently thought of as a dead playwright. <laughs> they had sort of consigned him to being dead alive. Let me ask you, the book is 600 pages long. You had access to unprecedented piles of his letters, interviews with people. You know, it, it, Obviously, can I just say there, Rico, yep. it, it's 600 pages, but 50 of those pages are beautiful pictures, which are half page at least. <laughs> and so it's not as big and awesome as that. Come on. It's a, it's, he's the most important playwright of the 20th century. Sure. Give a guy a break. It's an impressive <laughs> tome is what I'm saying. Let's say 550 pages. Okay, that's more like Obviously, it. Obviously, <laughs> you can't, even given that length, you can't get every great quote or anecdote in there. What is a gem that you couldn't squeeze in? No, I got it all in. <laughs> New Yorker writer John Lahr, his biography, Tennessee Williams, Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh, came out this week. And Brendan, last year, uh, I caught the Tony-nominated revival of Glass Menagerie on Broadway. It still holds up. It's still a classic. <laughs> <laughs> 70 years young. I believe it. Alas, we have to bring down the stage lights on this episode of the Dinner Party Download. Aww. Speaking of legendary American artists, next week we'll have one as our guest, musician and producer Quincy Jones. In his six decades in the music industry, he's learned one golden rule. 
if at first you don't succeed, then keep sucking the seed until you suck a seed. <laughs> Words to live by, I yeah. think. <laughs> and although Quincy Jones doesn't produce this show, that's fine, because we have the legendary Jackson Musker serving as our associate producer. Brittany Martin provides digital assistance. Engineering help this week came from Chris Clark, Daniel Ramirez, and Phil Richards. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Remember, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. This week, you can see a photo of Nick Frost making a crude joke about our studio. We were honored and delighted. Plus, we just launched a weekly newsletter, a little dossier chock full of info to arm you for your week's social gatherings, including our drink recipe of the week. Sign up at our website. It's DinnerPartyDownload.org. You can say you read it before it was cool. Bon appétit.